Hello and welcome to this chapter over the monster of Venice. Let me take you on this journey of one of the longest, most expensive unsolved crimes in Italian history. So this ranges from between 1974 to 1985. Seven couples, 14 people in all, murdered while enjoying each other's company <laughs> in parked cars on um, the hills of Florence. Um, more than 100,000 men have been investigated um, and a dozen have been arrested. And I want to take a quote from the Atlantic um, from the investigation. Or sorry, my goodness, I'm going to cut things up. <laughs> I want to take a quote from the Atlantic um, in an article called The Monster of Florence, A True Crime Story. Um, it's an expert, I think, from an actual book published by Douglas Preston. Um, the investigation has been like a malignancy spreading backward in time and outward in space, metastasizing to different cities and swelling into new investigations with new judges, police, and prosecutors, more suspects, more arrests, and many more lives ruined. I may flip between Florence and Venice when detailing these crimes, and my reasoning is due to a documentary I watched when I was 12 on the History Channel was titled The Monster of Venice, and it's actually The Monster of Florence, and so I may refer to this as The Monster of Venice. I don't mean to. <laughs> it's just kind of ingrained in my mind that way. This is a long-awaited story, and I'm so excited to dive on in. And welcome to today's episode. So I gave you a quick little snippet, a quick little preview just a moment ago, and we're going to dive on into our victims. And I'm going to start off first and foremost with two kind of disclaimers. A, this is a, a um, solo episode. It is just me today. I'm not going to have any friends uh, kind of join me um, on this talk today. And actually, I guess I got quite a few. Second, I have my fan on. It is 100 degrees here in the south, and I am way too hot. So I've got that on nice and loud. So I apologize. I'm definitely going to check the auto audio. If it's awful, don't worry about it. I'm going to cut that out in the background. And kind of my third and final disclaimer I am horrible at pronouncing names, especially beautiful Italian names, so I'm going to butcher a lot of names today, but it is not intentional, <laughs> I assure you of that, um, so I just kind of want to provide those quick little snippet disclaimers for our talk today. And I want to give you another apology. So oddly, while recording this episode, I encountered a lot of strange behavior. So I'm sitting here, I'm talking, and my lights would flicker, and my lamp would go in and out. And randomly, my closet door just slammed closed. And I was like, hmm, okay, maybe I shouldn't talk about this. So <laughs> I paused for that night. Uh, I will definitely keep you updated if that weird behavior continues again on our talk today. Um, so this went out a little bit later than I had anticipated. Um, I just... You know what I mean? I'm not trying to make any anybody, any spirits angry. <laughs> uh, so I want to start, I kind of dive on in really quickly. Um, and, and really, this is one of those odd cases that, much like um, the Zodiac Killer, we don't have really an origin story. I can give you a list of our victims, how they died, and I can give you what came out afterwards. Um, 
but I'm not going to be able to tell you this person was born on this date and here's what happened to them. This is why they made this choice. Unfortunately, I'm just not going to have that path on today's Unsolved, but I hope that you'll bear with me as we explore this um, together. So let's start with our victims. So I want to start from the very first one, which would be on August 21st, 1968. This is going to be two individuals, um, a man, Antonio Lobianco, uh, 29. He was a mason worker. And Barbara Loki, or Lochi, um, 32, was a homemaker. They were lovers. They were both shot to death with a 22 Beretta Insignia, uh, a small town to the west of Florence, while Lochi's son, Natalino, I'm so sorry, um, six, was asleep in the back of the car. The child woke up, finding his mother dead, fled in fright. At 2 a.m., he arrived at a house at, at about two kilometers from the crime scene and knocked on the door, telling the landlord, open the door and let me in. I'm sleepy, and my daddy is sick in bed. Then you have to drive me home because my mommy and my uncle are dead in their car. Questioned by the police on how such, could such a young child like him walk along a dark and unpaved county road, or country road, I'm sorry, for nearly two kilometers. Natalino initially answered he had run away alone, then changed his story and stated that either his father or an uncle, a term he had used to describe his mother's lovers, had driven him to the house where he asked for help. Years later, Natalito said again that he was alone, but was too shocked to remember exactly what happened on that night. Lochi, a native of Sardinia, was famous in the town because of her multiple love affairs and had received the nickname uh, Ape Regina, <laughs> which in parentheses it says Queen Bee. Her older husband, an Ignis man, can say words, <laughs> named Stefano Mele, was eventually charged with the murder and spent six years in jail. However, when he was imprisoned, more couples were murdered with the same weapon, um, and several of her lovers were suspected to be the perpetrators of the crime. And even Stefano, her husband, stated on several occasions that one of them had actually killed her. So that's kind of in Chapter A, Victims A and B. <laughs> Let's kind of move. And I'm laughing because of the awkward tension in my poor pronunciation, not because I think these crimes are funny. I just, it's just how I cope. <laughs> Sorry, second one, September 15th, 1974, Pascal, Gentacore, Barman, 19, and Stefania Pettini, accountant, 18, teenage sweethearts, both shot to death and stabbed in a country lane near Borgo San Lorenzo while having sex in Gentacore's Fiat. 127, or I almost read it as I-27. They were not far from a notorious disco called Teen Club, where they were supposed to be spending the evening with some friends. Bettini's corpse had been violated with a grapevine stalk and disfigured with 97 stab wounds. Some hours later before the murder, Bettini said something to a close friend about a weird man who terrified her. Another friend of Bettini's recalled that a strange man had followed and bothered the two of them during a driving lesson a few days before. Several couple, couples of lovers who used to park in the same area where Gentlecore and Bettini were murdered stated that particular area was frequented by voyeurs, a pair of them acting very oddly. So that's, that's kind of our second step there, our second um, round of victims. Our third is going to take place on June 6, 1981. Giovanni Foggi, or Foggi, uh, warehouseman 30, and Carmela DiNuccio, shop assistant 21, engaged, shot to death, and stabbed near Scandicini, where they both lived. DiNuccio's body was pulled out of the car, and the killer cut out her pubic area with a notch knife. The next morning, a young voyeur paramedic, um, Enzo Spalletti, 
30. When around speaking about the murder before the corpses had been discovered, he spent three months in jail charged with the murder before the perpetrator exonerated him by killing again. This is going to bring us to our fourth round, which is going to be October 23rd, 1981. Stefano Baldi, a workman, 26, and Susanna Camby, a telephonist, 24, engaged and due to be married, shot to death and stabbed in the park in the vicinity of Calizano. Camby's pubic area was cut out like Danuccio's. Danuccio's, I'm sorry. An anonymous person phoned Camby's mother the morning after the murder to talk to her about her daughter, say that <laughs> in that guy kind of voice because listen i've had those conversations a few days before the homicide susanna told her mother that there was someone tormenting her and even chasing her by car we're going to go to june 19th 1982 so the next year paolo Mar minardi mechanic 22 and antonella Miglorini, let me tell you, these names are beautiful but difficult for me <laughs> dressmaker 20 engaged and due to be married nicknamed the novel, a brand of superglue, as they were inseparable. Shot to death just after having sex in Minardi's car on, on a provincial road in Montes Bertoli. This time, the killer did not have time to mutilate the female victim as the road was relatively busy, and several passing by drivers testified they saw the car parked at the side of the road with its interior light turned on. Minardi, though seriously injured, was still alive when found. Police and ambulances were called immediately, but, but Minardi died some hours later at the hospital. Minardi probably heard or saw the killer approaching and tried to drive away, but he lost control of the car, got stuck in the ditch on the other side of the road. However, another reconstruction of the event suggests that after shooting the couple, the killer drove Minardi's car a few meters to hide the vehicle in the corpses in the woodland area nearby, only to lose control of the car and abandoning it in the ditch where it was discovered by a driver only a few minutes later. Now we're on our sixth round of vic victims. And these ones are going to be German, so their names are going to be even more difficult for me. Wilhelm Frederick Horstmeier, 24, and Jean, Jen, <laughs> Urushk. I say this all questioning because I have no idea how my pronunciation is on that. 24, both seniors at Faculty of Fine Arts in Ossenbruch, traveling in Italy to celebrate an important scholarship. Meyer had just won. Shot to death in their Volkswagen Samba bus in Galuzzo, Rusch's long blonde hair and his small build could have deceived the killer into thinking he was a female. Police suspected that they were gay lovers based on pornographic, pornographic materials found at the scene. Let's move to our seventh round of victims. If I'm keeping a good and accurate count. Claudio Stefan Stefanici, law student 21, and Pia Gilda Rotini, barmaid and cheerleader 18, sweethearts. The pair were shot to death and stabbed in Stefanini's Fiat Panda, parts in a woodland area near Vicio. The killer removed the girl's pubic area and her left breast. There were reports of a strange man who had been following them in an ice cream parlor some hours before the murder. A close friend of Rotini's recalled that she had confided that they had both been bothered by an unpleasant man while working at the bar. September 7th through 8th, 1985. This is bringing to our last round of victims. Jean. Sorry, let me give you the year because years have, have traveled at this point. So we started off. August 21st, 1968, and we are ending in September 7th through 8th, 1985. Jean-Michel Cravicivini? Oh, that's none of that's right. <laughs> Cravicivili. Oh, 
my goodness. <laughs> Hopefully that's right. Musician, 25, and Nadine Moreau. Tradeswoman, 36, lovers, both from Audincourt, France, on a camping vacation in Italy. Mario was shot to death and stabbed while sleeping in their small tent in a wooded area near San Cascano. Cravicivilli was shot... Uh, was killed a short distance away. I don't know how I read that a shot uh, from the tent while trying to escape. Morrow's corpse was mutilated because the killer had murdered two traveling foreigners. There were not yet a missing persons report. The killer sent, sent a taunting note along with a piece of Morrow's breast to the state prosecutor, Sylvia Della Monica, stating that a murder had taken place and challenging authorities to find the victims. A person picking mushrooms in the area located the bodies. A few hours before the letter arrived. Let's dive into our suspects and our reaction uh, by the public, by the people in Florence, Italy. It was not until the Scandisi murders in 1981 that the police realized the murders were connected. A newspaper article about the 1974 murder caused the police to perform a ballistics test and confirm the same gun had been used in both murders. Reporter Mario Spezzi named the killer Monster of Florence. A local voyeur was arrested and held in custody until the Calizano murders in 1981. After the 1982 murders, the police leaked false information that Mardiano had regained consciousness before dying in the hospital. Soon after, an anonymous tip called for the police to relook at the 1968 murder the same gun had been used for. The 1968 murder of Antonio Bianco, I'm sorry, and Barbara Lochi had been considered solved with the confession and conviction of Lochi's husband, Stefano Mele. Mele had been excluded as a suspect since he had been in prison during the 1974 and 1984 murder. 81s, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I cannot read today. Mele's statements in police interviews were inconsistent, shifting the blame, blame among his Sardinian relatives and acquaintances. Francesco Vinci was arrested first. He was a former lover of Lochi's, whose car had been found hidden on the day the false Martini information had been leaked. Francesco was kept in custody for over a year, even during the 1983 murders. Examining magistrate Mario Rotelli instead widened the net, arresting Mele's brother and brother-in-law, Giovanni Mele and Piero Mucciarini. The 1984 murders occurred when the three suspects were in custody, so the police released them. Rotella focused on Francesco's brother, Salvatore Vinci, himself another lover and former lodger of Barbara Lochis. Vinci's first wife had died in a fire in Sardinia, ruled a suicide, although rumored to be a murder. After the final monster murder in 1985, Rotella arrested Vinci and charged him with the murder of his wife intending to move from there to other killings attributed by the monster. The trial in Sardinia instead acquitted Vinci, who walked free. At this point, Chief Prosecutor Pierre Luigi Vigna thought the Sardinia trial spent and wanted to look into the possibility of the gun having been picked up by an unknown party after its use in 1968 murder. In 1989, Rotella was forced to officially clear all the Sardinian suspects and withdraw from the case. With the use of computer analysis and anonymous tips, a new suspect, Pietro Paxiana, was found. Paxiana had been both convicted for rape and domestic abuse of his two daughters and for the 1941 murder of a man who had relations with his ex-girlfriend, for which he had served 13 years in prison. Inspector Gregorio Perugini found incriminating evidence, such as similarities between the 1951 murder and the monster killings as well as a reproduction of Primavera by Botticelli and another painting thought to be by Passiana. Passiani, I'm sorry. Which 
nobody's ever seen the Primavera. It's it's a very pretty painting. It has like Mother Mary is who I believe that's supposed to be. Some people like dancing. Uh, look it up. Google it. <laughs> it's really pretty. Uh, it's one of those pieces of Italian art that I'm never ever going to explain right. Um, the only physical evidence against Passiani was an unfired bullet of the same brand of the monsters found in Passiano's garden at the end of the lengthy search. Passiano was controversially convicted in his initial trial in 1994. At his appeal, the prosecutor took Passiano's side, citing lack of evidence and poor police work. As a result, Passiani was acquitted and released in 1996. Perugini's successor, Michelle Guttari, <laughs> tried to introduce new witnesses at the final hour, but was denied. A new trial for Passiano was ordered by the Supreme Court, but he died in 1998 before it could begin. Instead, two alleged accomplices were tried, Mario Vanni and Giancarlo Lotti. Vani had been a witness at Passiani's trial, where he famously claimed the two of them were merely to be picnic companions, a term that had entered Italian vernaculum. Lottie had been one of um, Gutierrez's surprise witnesses, claiming to have seen Passiani and Vani commit the 1985 murder. After, more, after many more sessions of questioning, he had begun to incriminate himself in the murders as well. Both were convicted and condemned to life imprisonment. Though their sentences have been widely criticized and many consider the murders to be unsolved. In 2001, Gutierrez, now Chief in Inspector for the Police Unit's Guides, Grupo Investitivo Deliti Sirali, <laughs> Investigative Group for Sale of Crimes, again laughing at my poor pronunciation, you can just tell how white I am, announced that the crimes were connected to a satanic cult allegedly active in the Florence area. In his testimony, Lodi had spoken of a doctor who had hired Pacchiani to commit the murders and collect the genitalia of the women to use in his rituals. Gutierrez testified or justified this partly on the discovery of a pyramidal stone near a villa where Pacchiani had been employed. The stone, Gutierrez suggested, was indicative of cult activity. Critics such as Spezzi found this idea laughable, given that such stones were commonly used as doorstops in the surrounding area. The villa was searched, but nothing was found. Gutierre, the chief prosecutor of Perugia Giano Mignini and blogger Gabriella Carlizzi, speculated that a pharmacist, Francesco Calamandre, oh my goodness, Calamandre, and a deceased physician from Perugia, Francesco Narducci, or Narducci, had been involved in the secret society ordering Pacchiano and the others. Calamandre was put on trial while Narducci's body was exhumed. In the end, Calamandre was completely exonerated and nothing incriminating was found regarding Narducci. During the process, journalist Mario Spezzi was arrested by Mangini. Spezzi had only been investigating his own favored suspect, a son of Salvador, Salvatore Vinci, Minini claimed he did so to obstruct the investigation into Calamandre and Narducci's sect, sect, to which he claimed Spezzi belonged. After an international outcry, everybody was freaking out. Spezzi was set free. His arrest declared illegal. Gutierrez and Minini were indicted for abuse of office. Gides was dissolved, and no active investigation of the monster Florence remains. Italian magazine Tempe published an article on the 23rd of May 2018 suggesting that the Zodiac killer and the monster of Florence are the same person. Giuseppe Joe Bellavianca, an Italian-American, 
and Italian-American in a Tempe article published on the 13th of June, 2018. The author, author offers an explanation on how to decipher the Zodiac Killer's infamous cyphograms, cryptograms. This is where you get to see what no editing, just free-flowing looks like. I cannot pronounce anything correctly. So let's talk about resources that we can look at to dive into this further if you want to do this on your own. I'm not saying that my encapsulating short, quick episode is going to be all that there is to be had. I personally read the 2008 book, The Monster of Florence, A True Story by Douglas Preston, all because it was highlighted um, in that Atlantic article that I read. There is, um, oh my goodness, there is a movie, um, which I'm trying to figure out if I can find that. I believe it's of the same name um, as well. I've got it somewhere here in my notes. Uh, Il, Il Monstro di Firenze um, <laughs> is the name of that. So definitely say I recommend that to check out. There was, of course, an episode all about it in Criminal Minds, if you've seen that. Um, finding the original historical documentary that I found on the History Channel has been a tough one, uh, where they called it the monster of, of uh, Venice, <laughs> instead of it actually being the monster of Florence. But it is a very um, good documentary. I mean, at least I enjoyed it back then. There are tons of just quick little resources that you can find on Britannica, uh, Psychology Today, The Atlantic. So I highly recommend if you're interested in this kind of very famously unknown unsolved case, and I, I'm going to push you to some additional resources. I want to thank you for letting me come back into your good graces here. And I want to apologize for the lack of content. But again, you're going to be getting more from me. This one was just a little bit strange. So I was getting some unsuspected visitors, as explained previously in this episode. Um, but it seems like I at least didn't irritate them today. Maybe it's better because I'm doing it here in the afternoon rather than at midnight in their waking hour. Uh, that's 3 a.m., isn't it? Okay, I was a little early. Maybe they got up early. Um, but again, thank you so much for taking the time to have a listen. And I look forward to speaking with you again. <laughs>